Carson, Carson, oh, Kit Carson. Mountain man and buckskin tan help keep this country free. With buffalo gun and beaver trap, he didn't even have a map. The Rocky Mountains he called home, he only lived just further roam. Carson, Carson, oh, Kit Carson. Mountain man and buckskin tan help keep this country free. This is Our American Stories, and you are listening to Fess Parker singing old Kit Carson. And Kit Carson is one of the most complex characters in American history. We stumbled upon his story in Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2, Creating and Civilizing the American West by Phil Anchitz. And we've done some stories on Volume 1 of his great book. Carson's epic adventure in war and exploration embody the American spirit and its struggle for identity, the good, the bad, that come with the great conquest of the American West. All are summed up in this one man's epic life. And now we're about to bring you the story of Kit Carson, and it's driven by Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, and one of America's best storytellers about the American West. The mountain men were responsible for blazing nearly every trail to the Pacific coast, for discovering the natural wonders of the trans-Mississippi West, and for providing the muscle that fueled the fur trade. Yet few gained national recognition. An outstanding exception is Kit Carson, who becomes the most famous mountain man of them all. Kit Carson is portrayed heroically in books and articles, and as a character in movies. He is also the subject of a television series. He is one of those figures who made us proud to be an American and whetted the youthful appetite for grand adventures. Carson is present at the creation, it seems. He has witnessed the dawn of the trans-Mississippi American West in all its vividness and brutality. Place names throughout the West recall Kit Carson. There's Carson Pass and the Carson River in the Sierras. In Nevada, there's Carson Valley and Carson City, the capital of Nevada. There's the military post Fort Carson and the town Kit Carson in Colorado. One of Colorado's highest mountains is Kit Carson Peak in the Sangre de Cristo Range. And in Taos, New Mexico, there's Kit Carson Park. Christopher Houston Carson is born in a log cabin on Christmas Eve, 1809, in Madison County, Kentucky, the same year in the same state in which Abraham Lincoln is born. The 11th in a line of 15 siblings he is nicknamed Kit while still an infant, and the name sticks. When he is two, his Scotch-Irish family picks up and migrates westward to a farm near Boone's Lick, Missouri, home of the Daniel Boone clan. Here's Memphis native Hampton Sides, author of the national bestseller, Blood and Thunder, the epic story of Kit Carson and the conquest of the American West. His family was good friends with the Boone family. They intermarried. These were backwoodsmen. They were rough and ready folks who uh, were in search of opportunity. 
For their own safety, the Carsons and other pioneers at Boone's Wick dwell in a state of perpetual vigilance. They live in sturdy cabins built near forts, and well-armed sentries patrol constantly. All cabins are designed with rifle, loopholes, or firing ports in case of an Indian attack. Everyone knew a family whose child or mother had been carried off by Indians. Kit's sister, Mary, recalls, we would carry bits of red cloth with us to drop if we were captured by Indians so our people could trace us. Despite all this, the young Kit Carson plays with Indian children whose parents come to Boone's Lick to trade goods. From an early age, Kit learns that Indians are not monolithic, that tribes could differ substantially and violently from one another, and that each group must be dealt with separately on its own terms. Kit is not quite nine when his father is killed while felling a tree and the large Carson family is left in desperate straits. Kit drops out of school to work full-time on the family farm and hunts in his spare time to help put meat on the table. At 14 years old, Kit is apprenticed at a saddlery. The teenager hates both the work and the confinement in the saddle shop, but it proves to be a blessing in disguise. Many of the shop's customers are trappers, traders, teamsters, or scouts on the Santa Fe Trail. They're stirring tales of the way west and what lay over the far horizon sets the boy's imagination afire. Here's the executive director of the Western History Association, Paul Hutton. The West offers boundless opportunity, the freedom from all the restraints of family, all the restraints of a shopkeeper's life, and of course, the promise of adventure, of danger, of excitement. And so he runs away. He does a Huck Finn and lights out for the territories. At 16 in August, 1826, Kit turns a boy's adventure into a man's livelihood when he crosses the Missouri border and heads west with a merchant caravan on the newly opened Santa Fe Trail. After 900 miles on the trail, Carson settles in Taos, New Mexico, where he develops fluency in Spanish, French, and a half dozen Indian tongues. And he also masters the universal sign language used by Western tribes. And yet, for all his facility with language, Kit Carson is illiterate. Taos is the capital of the Southwestern fur trade, teeming with trappers, Americans, Frenchmen, Canadians, all of them scruffy and sunburned after months spent trapping in the Rockies. Carson wanted to be a part of this fraternity of men. And these greasy, grizzled, hairy, often drunk, international cast of characters who knew the rivers of the West and had been to all these amazing places. Uh, he wanted to be one of these guys as quickly as they'd have him. And when we come back, more on the life of Kit Carson, his story, here on Our American Stories. 
to have been different But you oftentimes will find That the story doesn't always go The way you had in mind And we return to the life of Kit Carson as told and driven by Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Let's pick up where we left off. In 1829, and not yet 20 years old, Carson joins a fur trapping brigade of 40 mountain men who venture into Arizona, most of which is still untouched by fur trappers. There probably was not a more dangerous profession in America at that time uh, than being a mountain man. There was the danger of grizzly bears, hypothermia, starvation. These men went into trackless wilderness for months at a time, all in pursuit of beaver pelts. But the greatest reason why so few mountain men have ventured into Arizona territory are the Apache. The Apache delight in torturing and killing their enemies, especially the nearby Pima and Papago Indians. In this world, the trapper's best chance at survival is for himself to adapt completely and entirely to the wilderness and to know intimately the Indians and their habits and their warfare. If the mountain men could do that, they survived. If not, they died. The West is where races intersect, cultures intersect, sometimes violently, more often not. Kit Carson moves easily in that world. He's not opposed to confronting people straight on and engaging in combat, taking a scalp if need be, to make a point. But that doesn't mean he couldn't sit down and break bread the very next week. He understood what was expected of him by Native peoples that he came in contact with in terms of peaceful relationships and trade relationships, but also in terms of conflict. And he understood that retribution must follow crime and follow it immediately and harshly if one was to survive in this environment. Every summer, the big fur companies organized what was known as the Mountain Man Rendezvous. And this was held high in the beaver country. It could be in Utah or Idaho or Wyoming. As always happens at these gatherings, various bands of Indians come to trade, gamble, and drink with the mountain men. And it's not uncommon for trappers to take squaws for their wives during this month-long festival. One of the most popular women attending the rendezvous of 1835 is a young Arapaho beauty named Singing Grass. She catches Carson's eye. But another man is equally smitten. He's a very large, swaggering, blustering French-Canadian trapper known as the Bully of the Mountains. He's also an expert shot. Singing Grass chooses Carson and rejects the Frenchman. Over the next several days, Frenchman goes on a bender and begins to menace anyone who crosses his path. 
after being ignored by other mountain men, he strolls over to Carson's camp and announces how he particularly enjoys thrashing Americans. Carson springs to his feet and exclaims, I'll rip your damn guts. The Frenchman says nothing but mounts his horse and rides out in front of camp, daring Carson to fight him. Carson quickly jumps on a horse and gallops up to the Frenchman. They stop so close to each other that their horses' heads touch. Both men draw guns and fire at precisely the same moment. The Frenchman's bullet creases Carson's head, taking scalp and hair with it. Carson's bullet goes through the Frenchman's right hand and blows away his thumb, causing him to drop his gun. Carson draws a second pistol and prepares to deliver the coup de grace. Gingerly holding his maimed appendage, the Frenchman begs for his life. Satisfied that he has humiliated him, Carson turns and rides away, says Carson. We won't have any more problems with this bully Frenchman anymore, will we? Singing grass? And Carson marry after Carson offers her father a bride price of five blankets, three mules, and a gun. Carson is 25 years old. Like many of the trappers, Carson settled down with an American Indian woman. He found that this marriage was certainly a marriage of convenience in the sense that he had someone on the trail with him who helped do all the thousand and one tasks that had to be done. But it was the first love of his life. He was devoted to her. After giving birth to their second daughter in 1840, Singing Grass dies of complications. And then shortly later in an accident, the baby dies. She was a good wife to me, Carson tells a friend years later. I never came in from hunting that she didn't have warm water ready for my cold feet. Adding to Kit's pain, America is experiencing intense growing pains. The era of the mountain man is coming to an end. Decades of trapping has destroyed the beaver population, and the once fashionable beaver hat is now being replaced with one made of silk. Every summer throughout the 1840s, there were fewer and fewer beaver pelts. And this was a, a consequence of just how amazingly good these guys were at what they did. Here's Kit Carson from his autobiography. We trapped down the river, but found no beaver. The country was barren. It became necessary to try our hand at something else. The beaver market collapses, and Carson finds himself out of work, widowed, and shouldering the burdens of parenthood alone. He is 29. With his pockets empty and his future uncertain, Kit brings his daughter Adeline east and leaves her with family in Missouri to make sure she receives the education he never had and to protect her from the struggle that lies ahead. But as he boards a whistling steamboat in St. Louis for a trip up the Missouri, his prospects change when he strikes up a conversation with a passenger. 
How far are you taking her? I am leading an expedition through the Rocky Mountains. You ever been to the mountains, sir? It's a far piece. It'll probably take you where you want to go. Well met, sir. John C. Fremont. Kit Carson. John C. Fremont is an American military lieutenant and an explorer who's about to embark on an expedition to survey and map the American West. And he has yet to hire a guide. Although Fremont has his doubts, he hires Carson on the spot. Carson and Fremont were kind of an odd couple from the start. Fremont is quite well-educated, a very flamboyant guy. Carson, on the other hand, is unassuming, has this wry sense of humor. The boy's gonna make it. He's always giving someone else the credit. Fremont and Carson blaze an overland route to the Pacific, a route that has already been discovered. Carson, join me with the flag. But it's virtually unused by anyone except mountain men and Indians. Look at all that out there, as far as I can see. By May of 1846, the soon-to-be-called Oregon Trail is completed. Here's Sherry Monahan, president of the Western Writers of America. They were the first people to figure out where they could ford rivers, what was the safest route where you didn't have to climb mountains, and they were the ones that led all of the pioneers out to populate and tame the Wild West. Dubbed the Pathfinder, Fremont's name reaches Lewis and Clark's status, and Carson's heroics become American legend. And when we come back, more on the life of Kit Carson. You're listening to Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, and he's one of our best storytellers in this country. More on the life of Kit Carson after these messages. One of the things that Carson did during one of the expeditions with Fremont was they encountered some uh, Hispanic uh, wayfarers who had had their horses stolen from them. The New Mexicans have been attacked by Indians, and uh, the kind of mindset of the frontiersman was that you didn't allow this kind of behavior to go on, that you had to make a statement. Rather spontaneously, Carson decides to pursue these Indian horse thieves. The Indians were a large group, but nevertheless, Carson and his companion snuck up on the band, killed several of them, retrieved all the horses, brought back the horses and several Indian scalps to Fremont's camp. This really impressed Fremont, Carson risking his life for a complete stranger. In August 1844, Fremont has his expedition reports bound and published. 
on nearly every page. He lavishes praise upon his fearless scout. Carson became a great romantic figure as an explorer, as a guide, as a frontiersman, as an Indian fighter. In these books that were supposed to be reports, they were actually grand adventure tales. These books were bestsellers in their day and were used as handbooks by hundreds of thousands of people going west. Here's American West historian Sally Denton. Immigrants would be in their wagons holding that and it would say, this is where you're gonna find fresh water. This is where there's going to be grass where you can graze your cattle. It was really uh, the first uh, map of its kind in America. But following the unlikely pattern of his life, Carson's mission to map the Western territories is about to take on even greater significance. An unexpected dispatch arrives from the White House. It's from President Polk and the Secretary of War. President Polk is determined to push America's western border all the way to the Pacific. California, it says we are to continue our fine work in the west. Carson and Fremont's exploratory expedition has just become a military mission. I shall assert the right to that portion of our territory which lies beyond the Rocky Mountains. President Polk had a vision of what America should look like. He wanted all of it. And he vowed that he would get it all, either by purchasing or, or by war, within one term. This is the execution of Thomas Jefferson's vision for continent-wide expansion, and the term Manifest Destiny is coined 42 years after Jefferson acquired the Louisiana Territory from Napoleon in 1803. On April 25th, 1846, Mexican cavalry attacks a group of U.S. soldiers. 18 days later, Congress declares war on Mexico. It's the beginning of the Mexican War. Navy warships close in on the California coast, and Army troops advance from the east. Fremont and Carson arrive in California, and there in Northern California, they support the Bear Flaggers in the Bear Flaggers' capture of Sonoma. As a reward for his valuable service, Carson rides to Washington, D.C with a thick packet of sealed letters to deliver the good news to President Polk. But on his way, a greater duty redirects his path. Here's American frontier historian, Derwood Ball. Kit Carson ran into uh, Stephen Watts Kearney leading first United States dragoons overland from Santa Fe to help finish the uh, conquest of California. We're going back to the West Coast. Kearney ordered me to join him as his guide. I'd done so. He made me believe he had the right to order me. Kent now leads General Stephen Kearney and 300 of his cavalry troopers to California. And one of those cavalry troopers happens to be the son of the famous Sacagawea. Kearney also has a direct connection 
the Lewis and Clark expedition. He is married to the daughter of William Clark. Now, before they get to California, they discover from some Mexicans they captured near the Arizona-California border that there's a revolt going on in California against American rule. In December of 1846, Kearney orders an attack at Mule Hill in San Pasquale, some 35 miles north of San Diego. But his weary men and exhausted mules that they're riding are outnumbered by well-trained Mexican lancers on fine horses. Americans are trapped on Mule Hill with no cover and dwindling supplies. Here's historian David Eisenbach. Don't take the shot unless you got it. It's a desperate situation. They've run out of food. The only thing they have to eat are the mules. And the only reinforcements are about 30 miles away in San Diego. Despite all this, in the finest tradition of the U.S. Cavalry, Kearney orders a charge. The battle that erupts is known as the Battle of San Pasquale. And Carson is in the thick of it from beginning to end. By the end of the second day, Kearney has lost 18 men and a dozen others, including Kearney himself, have been wounded. Kearney's last hope is to send a messenger on foot through enemy lines to get help from Marines and sailors in San Diego. Carson. We need supplies. I'll take care. Without hesitation, Kit Carson follows orders once again. When darkness falls, Carson, an Indian scout, and a Lieutenant Edward Beale begin their journey. Just before dawn, the three split up to avoid detection. We need to get barefoot. Before dawn, the three men begin their journey, but they begin it by creeping and crawling for several miles through enemy lines. Here's Kit Carson from his autobiography. I had to crawl about two miles. And having had the misfortune to lose our shoes, we had to travel barefooted in a country covered with prickly pear and rocks. And then they split up and take three different routes, about 30 miles each, to San Diego. I need to speak with the commander of this outpost immediately. Within hours, Commodore Stockton sends a force of 200 Marines and sailors to San Pasquale. And the Mexican army, seeing them come, gallops away. Kit stays behind, unable to walk for a week because of the condition of his feet. A year later, the U.S. concludes the Mexican War and, through the Mexican Cession, acquires another 500,000 square miles of territory, adding some 20-25% more territory to the United States. And now the United States truly does stretch from sea to shining sea, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Manifest destiny.
is now a reality. And when we come back, the final segment in this epic story of Kit Carson. And we continue with the final segment of the life of Kit Carson. Kit Carson went to the West for the freedom and openness to escape from the constraints of society back home, back in the States. But then, of course, he brought it all with him. The dream of a continental nation has been met, and America stretches from sea to sea. The West is transformed and he sees it all, but he's also one of the major instruments that brings about that change. Carson is once again dispatched to Washington, D.C. He arrives at St. Louis and then catches a train to deliver Fremont's field reports to President Polk in May of 1847, some three months after his departure. Washington, D.C. at the time of Kit Carson's arrival was becoming much more sophisticated. <laughs> and just imagine this man who had been living most of his life out on the frontier has got to come back to this society. He had to be very uncomfortable. Off the trail, Kit is a shy, unassuming man, content to keep to himself. But in Washington, his celebrity is overwhelming thanks to his real-life heroics and some 70 Kit Carson dime novels that are consumed by Americans from coast to coast. Everyone wants to meet Kit Carson, and that's because Kit Carson is the very living, breathing symbol of the American frontier and of our expansion westward. And, of course, everyone wants to hear from his lips what the opportunities are for America in the West. The runaway apprentice has come a long ways. Carson's married three times and fathers ten children. His first two wives are Indian squaws, but his third wife is a beautiful, slender, 14-year-old Mexican girl named Josefa. She is 18 years his junior. Carson converts to Catholicism, and the two are married in 1843 in the Taos Parish Church. Carson thinks he might spend his remaining years as a peaceful family man. No such luck. The wave of migration continues to surge west. Clashes between settlers and Indians escalate 
in what becomes known as the Indian Wars. We come from the Santa Fe Trail. There's a woman and child, they're both missing. Would you help us? Duty calls Kit Carson once again. A Missouri trader named James White is headed west on the Santa Fe Trail with his wife, Anne, and infant daughter. When their party is attacked by Apache Indians, James is killed, and the infant and the wife, Anne, are taken captive. Carson is illiterate, but if there's a story to be read on the ground, there's no better man to do it. The formative experience for Kit Carson was when he worked as a mountain man. His ability to track animals then became a very important asset in his ability to track human beings. It's them. Finally, late on the 12th day, Carson sees plumes of smoke curling skyward in the distance. There's no time to lose. Yeah. Yeah. When Carson discovers the Apache camp, he finds Ann White dead, lying on her back with a steel-tipped arrowhead daubed with rattlesnake blood struck through her heart. She's still warm. Couldn't have been dead more than five minutes. She has been horribly abused, covered with bruises and lacerations, and she's also been gang-raped day after day by her Apache captors. Carson finds something else. Here's a quote from his autobiography. We found a book in camp in which I was represented as a, a great hero, slaying Indians by the hundred. Mrs. White must have read it, knowing that I lived nearby, must have prayed for my appearance in order that she might be saved. Ann White's infant is never found, and the incident haunts Carson until the day he dies. The way that you wander is the way that you choose. Sunshine or thunder A man will always wonder where the fair wind But the Whites are just a drop in the ocean among the tidal wave of travelers rolling westward, a wave that can be traced back to the discovery of gold in California, news of which Kit Carson carried on one of his courier missions back east. In 1849 alone, some 100,000 Americans have set out for California, and the numbers will only increase. Carson was so effective in fighting the Indians and in making peace with them, that by 1853, his appointed Indian agent to the Utes, a band New Mexican officials brand, the most difficult to manage in the territory. The Utes were a very special tribe to Kit Carson. He absolutely loved them. He rode with them, uh, he hunted with them, he knew them quite well. When the Civil War erupts in 1861, Carson resigns as an Indian agent and joins the Union as a colonel of the New Mexico Volunteers. He commands two battalions at the Battle of Valverde in 1862, which slows the Confederates 
from an advance up the Rio Grande Valley. Now, the Apache and Navajo take advantage of the Civil War and renew their raids in New Mexico. Over the previous year alone, more than 30,000 sheep have been stolen and uh, some 300 people killed by the Indians. Carson leads expeditions against both tribes. Carson lived in New Mexico his entire adult life, and public enemy number one was the Navajo. Everybody in New Mexico, every Hispanic person, had some friend or family member who had been killed by the Navajo or had been stolen by the Navajo. And I think he thought a reservation on the Pecos was as good as any that had been put forward as to how to end this cycle of violence. The campaign against the Navajo ends with the removal of 9,000 tribe members to a reservation in New Mexico. The Navajo call the removal the Long Walk and about 200 of them die on the journey. The 53-year-old Carson rides in the vanguard along with some of his favorite Ute warriors who are longtime bitter enemies of the Navajo. Carson doesn't like clearing out the Navajo, but the alternative is to ignore their raids in the midst of the Civil War. Here's Pulitzer Prize-winning Indian novelist in Scott Mamaday. He knew the Indians. He had known them from an early time as a mountain man. He probably knew Indians better than any other white man of his time. He knew what uh, they would stand and how they could be brought to terms with the army. And, uh, you know, he didn't hesitate, I think, to, to act on the basis of his knowledge. Before the Civil War ends, Carson is promoted to Brigadier General. Following the war, Carson returns to his family, but duty keeps calling. In 1868, with chest pain so bad he could hardly breathe, Carson brings a delegation of Ute chiefs to Washington to negotiate a treaty, establishing a permanent reservation on the very ground the tribe claims as its own. Here he is, this Indian fighter, known for his various campaigns. And yet, he was also a peacemaker and a diplomat. I think the trick to understanding Carson is to go back to that idea that, for him, there was no such thing as, as the American Indian. He sided with certain groups, and other groups were his enemy throughout his life. Shortly after Carson returns home, his wife, Wasifa, gives birth to their eighth child. But complications set in, and within two weeks, his wife dies, and he's holding her in his arms. Then, just one month later, on the afternoon of May 23, 1868, Carson's aortic aneurysm ruptures, <coughs> calls out suddenly from his pallet of buffalo robes on the floor. Kit Carson passes from life into legend. And great job to the whole team, and thank you, Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, and thank you also to Mr. Phil Anschutz and his terrific book. By the way, get it if you can. Out Where the West Begins, 
Volume 2. So many great stories. We're going to get to a bunch of them. Thomas Jefferson, who starts it all. Of course, Tecumseh, Chief Red Cloud, Brigham Young, Frederick Douglass, George Washington Carver, and Mark Twain. Those stories coming up over the next weeks and months here on Our American Stories. Five years, you have turned Greek yogurt, which meant nothing to anyone, into a massive business. How did this really start for you? How did you create this? Help other entrepreneurs right now. You know, I never went to business school. I never worked for anyone before. I don't have an experience of running businesses. You never got a paycheck from any other corporate? No. No. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we were just listening to an interviewer speaking with Shabani yogurt founder Hamdi Wailakaya, a Turkish immigrant who indeed took Greek yogurt from virtually non-existence in American culture to a dominant staple in literally just a few years. Its market share from less than 1% of all yogurt sold in 2007 to get this, more than 50% in 2013. There may not ever have been anything like this in terms of an industry and a revolution in an industry. Now, yeah, it's yogurt, but my goodness... It's a big category, as you'll find out in this remarkable story. We're excited that Hamdi is the latest profile in our American Dreamer series. And we love this series. Our favorite, by the way, on the American Dreamer series, our great hour spent with auto racing legend Mario Andretti. And go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org. Listen to that hour. Mario spent an hour with us, actually more, and we, we captured... One of the great American dreamer stories. He came from Italy with nothing and turned himself and the family name into one of the great auto racing names in world history. And we'll start this story by hearing Hamdi talk about his early life. This clip comes from his commencement address at the University of Albany, a school he attended when he immigrated to the United States, but his school that he never graduated from. I came from a small town east of Turkey. Even in Turkey, you cannot find it in the map, next to Euphrates River. And when I make my way up here, as 22, 22 years old young man, spoke no English, had not much money, and I was confused, I was scared, I had a ton of question marks in my head. I really didn't know what the next day is going to be like. And I remember walking around the campus here in downtown. The only escape I had from my worries, going down to the, state, uh, the field, watch the soccer uh, team playing or uh, getting ready. I loved the game. 
when I grow up. And I would always think, what if I can be part of this team? Wouldn't that be awesome? But then, then, then in the evening, I would go back to the farm that I was working with a small sandwich from a steward's store, and then the next day, we'll come back. I couldn't afford, or neither I have time, to stay in the college to graduate because that was my dream, to tell my mother I actually graduated from an American university. But I continue. The way that I grew up in the eastern Turkey in a farm and raising sheep and cows and, and working with my family. And when I came to upstate New York, it felt like a home. You know, it was the same landscape, same people. I felt home. And later on, I realized in order to get best out of yourself, you have to feel home. So true. At one point, his father came to visit and said, quote, They don't have very good feta cheese here. You should make cheese. Hamdi thought this was nuts. He didn't come all the way to America to make cheese. But that's what he did, barely breaking even and calling it two years of the most challenging days of his life until he ran across something that felt like it had more promise to it. I got a... Uh an ad on the paper said, fully equipped yogurt plant for sale. I throw it to my garbage can. It's a true story. And then 20 minutes later, I picked that letter. I said, I wonder what this is all about. And I called the person. And I went to visit the plant the next day. It turns out it was a craft plant. It was there for 70 to 80 years. And the small community and this was the end of it. They were going to close it. 55 people were going to lose their job. It was the saddest day for the community. I felt like somebody died in the community. When I left, I said, this price is really cheap. I should buy this place. And I called my attorney. I said, I just saw a plant. It's an awesome price. I want to buy it. He said, now, this is the largest food company closing the factory. Here's the largest food company getting out of yogurt category. Who the hell are you <laughs> to think that you could do something out of it? If there was something, they could have done it. I said, you're right. I Forget about the idea, but the next day I called him again. So finally, he tried to convince me. He told me, you have a, another big problem. He said, you have no money. Uh, that's not a big problem. You could always figure it out. August 15, 2005, I had a key for this old factory and I hired five people from that 50 by. I remember the days I was in the campus. I said, Polish cow. What did I do again? 
how am I going to turn this around? And what he did next, you're about to hear. We're talking about the life of Hamdi Oilakaya. And this is one great American Dreamer segment. This is Our American Stories. More with Hamdi's story after these messages. American Stories, and we're back with our American Dreamer series, which is always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And Job Creators Network is the champion of small business owners, and those small business owners, of course, trying to turn their businesses into bigger businesses, and that is what the American Dream is all about, self-reliance, and man, living your own dream, starting your own thing, and making it happen. And we're on the story of Hamdi Oylakaya. And he, of course, is the Chobani yogurt founder and a Turkish immigrant in upstate New York who finds out that Kraft Foods is shutting down and selling their yogurt plant. And he's crazy enough to buy it and enter a space the world's largest food company was getting out of. And crazy enough to dream up the great Greek yogurt brand Chobani, as we said before. Before Hamdi walked into this plant for the first time as its owner, he made sure he did something with the people he'll never forget. Just before we walked in, we took a picture with that five people that I hired first time. Those five people were five of 55 who worked in that plant for 15, 20, uh, 20 years. I have to mention their name because it's very, very important for our Chobani story and also important that these names, these, these faces, these people, what they do every day is, 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 is what this country is all about. Is Maria, who was there for uh, answering calls for 15, 15 years. Rich was uh, a production manager. Mike uh, was the maintenance person who worked there and retired and came back to work. Frank was the wastewater guy. Mustafa is the yogurt maker and myself. This, this, this little town, South Edmiston, very lonely, very lonely road, middle of nowhere, and there's a bar across the street from that plant. It's called Croches. And the people who went to that bar is the bikers with the tattoos and, you know, scary looking. They were nice, but I was scared. <laughs> and this is the environment that we started. This small town where he started, Chobani, had only 1,000 people living there. And Hamdi frequently says that one of the greatest attributes of America is the spirit and the resilience of our small towns. And once they walked into that factory, he and his five employees now had to do something. But what? They're looking at me as if I have the magic answers to these people. And one of them, Mike, he said, so what's now? I said, we're going to go to the Ace store, and we're going to buy some white paints, and we're going to paint the walls outside. He said, those walls... 
hasn't been painted for the last 15 years. Don't you have anything else to worry about? I said, but they don't look good. We need to do something about it. He said, do you have any other plan than painting the walls? I said, no. But my friends, one of the best things I've done in 2005, in summer of 2005, is start painting the wall. I didn't have a lot of answers, and I didn't have an idea, but that summer, we paint those walls best than ever. It's still there. But along the way, I came up with more ideas. I came up with what I am going to do. I started searching. And it reminded me this word that in Turkish, the poet that lived in Turkey, Rumi, says, if you start walking the way, the way appears. Here is one of those moments from Chobani's early days that he does remember. This is after spending two whole years perfecting their yogurt and many nights sleeping over in the factory so they could keep working on their product. So here you are, you're, you're working almost two years, all your dreams, all your time, everything you put it into this cup. It's the first time you're shipping to a customer. The customer is in kosher store in Long Island, it's 200, 200 cases, and me and my sales guy and everybody, we packed it in a four-lane filler uh, all that night. And I'm outside at night. It was about 9 o'clock. And uh, having a cigarette, talking to Kyle, I said, so Kyle, what are we going to do now? He said, well, I guess we're going to go sell, sell this thing. And he shipped that product next day to, uh, to the store. The week that I waited was the longest week I can ever remember. Now, somebody's going to sell me end of that week is you get something good or you sell something decent, awesome, or nobody's buying. Because this is the first time that we're going to see what's happening in the real life. So I called the guy, God bless him, the next week, and I said, how are you doing? How's the product is doing? It's a small store. He said, I'll tell you, your packaging is so different. People pick it, and they, I'm selling it. I said, is it the same people are buying it, or is it different people are buying it? It's important for me. He said, basically, the same people are buying it, and they're telling other people to buy it. So I'm going to give you another order. That was his 450 cases. This is a good sign, really good sign. I'm not dancing and you know, um, uh, partying yet, but it's a really encouraging sign. They would sell all of those 450 cases as well, and another store added them, and Hamdi felt like they were now ready for larger distribution. If you start a startup, you know, yogurt or food, you normally go to the natural aisle. I told him, no, let's go to a big, like, shop ride or a chain store. And he says, Hamdi, we have to pay fee to put the product into the shelf. We don't have that kind of money. It's $20,000, $30,000 per cup to put into the shelf. 
So, so we go to the buyer in ShopRite, and then we say, you know, we have four, four or five, strawberry, blueberry, peach, vanilla, and plain, five. So if you want to put five SKUs into your shop, you know, $200,000. $200,000? We don't have $200,000, but here's what we're going to do. We promise this is going to sell. <laughs> it's, a, it's a true story. We promise this is going to sell. Put it in the shelf. Every week, you can cut you know, 10% from this 200000 so, so the guys laugh like hysterically. This must be something that never came up before. And he says, so what if it doesn't sell? We said, we're going to give you the factory. <laughs> it's a true story. The guy laughed even further, but they liked, he liked us. He says, OK. Week later, week or two weeks later, the same guy called. Now, we have five SKUs. Yogurt aisle is dominated by two big brands, Danon and Jenner, your plate and Danon. It's huge. And not huge, it's good enough. But we are in the right upper corner, five cups hanging right there. I mean, you really have to look at it. But the cups were so different. I sleeved them, you know. Graphic, I did everything for those five cups. So even if you don't pay a lot of attention, when you walk by, you will, you'll see it. Right now, they all copied me. Everything looks similar. But at that time, it was very different. <laughs> so the guy calls two weeks later. He said, I don't know what kind of crap you put into these cups. <laughs> Do not tell me. <laughs> but I cannot keep it in the shelf. It was an eye-opening. At that moment, I realized that this was not going to be about selling. It was going to be about, can I make it enough? Greatest realization. This is what was going to happen. And that moment, I decided that my next, I don't know how many years, is going to be in the factory. I'm not going anywhere. Because this is about making. And he understood that insight. It wasn't about selling. It was about making and how to get it good, how to make a lot of it, how to get the price down. And this is one, one remarkable American dreamer story. The story of Hamdi Woylakaya, the Chobani yogurt founder, one of our American dreamer stories, an American dreamer series, always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And nobody champions the work, the plight of small business owners better than the great folks at Job Creators Network. More on this great American story, this great American dreamer's story, after these messages.
<laughs> this is Our American Stories, and we continue with a terrific story, a terrific American dreamer's story, Hamdi Wolakaya, and his story is remarkable. The founder of Chobani Yogurt, him challenging two giants in the food business, and by the way, usually what happens in these stories is the guy brings up that company to a certain level and in come the big guys and they buy it and then they market it and they distribute it. Not a case with Chobani. And by the way, as always, these American Dreamer stories are brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. There's no better place, no better institution fighting for small business and small business owners, fighting the red tape that gets in the way of small business owners, tax policy that stops small businesses from growing. They're the heartbeat, the lifeblood of America, small business owners. And my goodness, the hurdles they face just trying to stay open and keep their doors open. It's never been tougher. And so Job Creators Network is out there fighting the fight for small business owners all across this great country. And so here's Hamdi in 2014 speaking at an Inc. magazine conference about their wild growth and how they changed the yogurt landscape against all odds. We have gone from five people to 3,000 people. We went from like $3 million in, you know, in 2007 sales to over a billion dollars in sales in 2012. We, <clears throat> we invested almost $900 million by by end of 2012, in the factories, we built the world's largest factory in Idaho. I bought a business in Australia. That was my first trip to Australia. I bought the damn thing. And I started the started business there. We sponsored Team USA. And we became number one brand in the country. And we, we stayed 100% independent until the end of 2012. This whole thing started from that Sadat Muslim old factory with one dream, with one product, like yogurt. It's been around for hundreds of hundreds of years. So within this time, I have gone through a lot of realization. But the biggest one was I get to know myself. I was this guy. I had no idea I was a businessman, and I was an entrepreneur, or I was a marketer, or I was a I can even speak. I didn't know any of these. And this is the power of this journey, is I think the most important one is what it does to us individually. And then what it does to surroundings after. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's nothing like it out there. So I feel extremely lucky. I wouldn't change this for anything. Would I want to eat pizza for three, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day for five years again? No. <laughs> but I'm glad I've gone through this. So, I, from the day one, you know, people ask, what was your reason of studying? What was your purpose? What was your mind? What was in this? And if anybody answers these questions to you, boom, 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 it's, and you know it. You know, we don't have to. In the end, it's like, I want to I climb this mountain. I want to cross this ocean. Whatever that is, it's just like you, you throw yourself into a journey. And during this time, you find your reason, your purpose, what your plan is, and everything else. Um, 
But you have to, I found out that you have to find a way to elevate yourself, to be above common sense. Because we cannot do what we have done with the mirror or with the glasses of common sense. What they teach in the schools, what the report says, what the market research says, we cannot do it with that view. We have to think something differently. And that is usually an emotional shift. And that emotional shift comes from passion, from personal reasons, from personal problems. So when you're elevated, then you're not looking at opportunity or problem or a dream from a common, uh, common perspective. If somebody would tell me when I was painting that wall, he says, Hamdi, five years from now, you know these five people, it'll be about 3,000. This factory you have here that has four lanes, it's going to have 14 lanes. You're going to have two million cases coming out of this flag. You see that bar out there? It'll be wiped out. You're going to build 160,000 square feet warehouse, and you're going to build a million square warehouse in Idaho, and guess what? You'll still be you know, independent and all that stuff. I will look at them, guys, and why have you been smoking? In a common sense, that's not possible. Because a buying a filler, installing it, it takes 12 months. One filler, if you order today, by the time you install it, it takes 12 months. How are you going to build 14 fillers when you have only $1 million to work with and grow the business to a billion dollars? It's not possible. But that's common sense. But when you got in it, you don't even realize what you're doing. It, it just keeps happening. It's true, and he later said, by the time you look back, you say, my God, how far we've come. Hamdi says his story could only have happened in America. He's enjoyed Chobani's successes, but he says that what's most important, what he's relished the most, is how it's enabled him to help others. The company gives 10% of all of their profits to charity, and yet it's not the actual amount that matters to him, but what it produces, a very simple but powerful thing to him, bringing a smile to the beneficiaries' faces, an intangible feeling that money just can't measure, and that they can then pass on to even more people. Only a year after founding Chobani, he began intentionally hiring refugees who were escaping tyrannical regimes around the world, and now employs more than 300 of them. More recently, he discovered that only 1% of those seeking refuge were resettled by the UN. He blames government for decades of incompetence that created this crisis and is pleading with the American business community, those who have proven to be effective, to join him in employing refugees. And he says once they're employed, well, once they have that job, they're no longer refugees. It's why he's committing over one-half of his $1.69 billion fortune to the refugee cause. And in 2016, Hamdi decided to look even closer to home. He owns 100% of Chobani, but has freely decided to give away 10% of the ownership to his employees, a potential windfall if the company is sold or goes public, of several hundred thousand dollars for each employee, and millions for those with him at the very start. Here's Hamdi speaking about why he did this. It's been my dream. I'd like to get back to them and say, you and this community and this country has been so great to us, and I'd like to return that favor back to you. And here's Chobani, employee number six, 
Terry Edmonds speaking to NBC News about it and crying, and crying more about what this journey has meant to all of them and just being appreciated. That more than the money itself. I think about how little we started and how hard all these people worked to, to bring this to what we have. And I'm very proud. And we'll close our celebration of Hamdi's life with the closing of his commencement address before the university he didn't have enough money to graduate from, the University of Albany. I didn't care what the others told me about me. I didn't care what they told me, how crazy I was, how weak I was, how much less English I had. didn't matter. Because when I closed my eyes, I remember how my mother saw me. I was her son. And I was the best. And what a way to close things out. What a memory to keep in deep in your mind. The mother's love. What an American dreamer story. Hamdi Woylakaya, founder of Chobani, part of our American Dreamers series, as always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. This is Our American Stories. is our american stories and we've all heard of gunslingers wild bill hickok doc holiday and billy the kid these three quick draw legends got nothing on the guy we're about to meet here's greg hengler with a story we all know the classic cowboy film story where the bad guy shows up in town and picks a fight with the good guy well you wouldn't want to pick a gunfight with the good guy you're about to meet after all, if gunslinger Bob Munden would have existed in the Wild West, he would have simply been called Death. Bob Munden is one of the great characters in all the shooting sports. If you don't believe me, just ask him. I'm not perfect. Like I tell people all the time in jest, I'm not perfect. I'm just the closest thing you're going to get to it. And that's what I tell them, you know, and all in jest, of course, and I have fun with it. All jokes aside, Bob is the most decorated, fast-draw competitor of all time, a feat that earned him the title, the fastest gun who ever lived. It takes a human three-tenths of a second to blink. Bob can draw, cock, fire from his hip, it's called instinctive shooting, and reholster faster than an eye can blink. I first realized I, was, I had this ability when I first started shooting competition on electronic timers. The speed of my draw, to, to the mechanics of drawing and firing the gun, is uh, a one and three quarters, one hundredths of one second, or less than one half of one half of one tenth of one second, or just fast, whatever's easy for you to say. Here's Bob being interviewed at one of his fast draw competitions in 1986. 
You are known as one of the fastest gunslingers in the world. Yeah, well, I'll say, I'm listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the fastest man with a gun who ever lived. Oh. You know, there are 18 world records you can hold in this sport. I hold all 18 and have since 1960. Okay, now how do, how do you compare to some of the, you know, the old Wild West heroes that we hear about and see on movies and stuff like that? And, uh, you know, how, uh, how they used to have, like, duels and draw against each other and... Well, as I said, I mean, there's not one incident recorded in history where two men faced off and drew guns at one another. The movies created fastball. It never happened in real life. Really? Mm -hmm. You mean no, no two guys went out there and decided to do that ever? No. Oh, I see. It's, it's a fabrication of the movies. How, how, did, how did Bill Hickok die? I think it was shot in the back. That's the way they all died. I've taken what, they, what the movies have created, and I've built a show around it. And I have pushed it. We've made a science of it. Fast draw is the fastest thing a human being does. Nobody does anything faster than what I do with guns. Can you give it a comparison to something that would come close but is not as fast? Speed of light, which is far beyond it. Right. There is nothing next to it. Now you say, no way you talk about it. I said, well, I mean, and then I have to show you. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, the fastest gun in the world right here. In 2010, the 68-year-old Munden was tested by sports physiologist David Sandler, who is an expert in human movement and has studied the world's fastest people. Here's David. Yeah, basically we have a couple different kinds of accelerometers that we're going to place on Bob's hand. And so as Bob goes through the range of motion, we're going to pick up the actual acceleration of his hand and be able to determine velocity from that. We have the ability to measure in thousands of a second, so uh, hopefully we can, we can catch what's right. happening. You know, the human eye can't keep up with anything no, like no. that. No, no way. Ready? And three, two, one, go. Wow. Wow. That was incredible. So what's happening is your hand, when you do that pop, the max acceleration peak registers up here. And you reach nearly 10G of acceleration with your hand. Okay, what that means uh, in normal language is uh, it's incredibly fast. G stands for the force of gravity on Earth. Fighter pilots are tested to withstand a maximum of nine Gs but Bob's muscles, for a fraction of a second, are generating 10 Gs of force. But more incredibly, the results show that Bob can draw cock fire and reholster his gun faster than the reaction time in the average human brain. Human, human reaction is around two-tenths of a second. The whole, the actual action lasted less than a tenth of a second. No. What's that comparable to? Well, I've actually measured rattlesnakes before, and uh, he is faster than a rattlesnake. Looks like around six hundredths of a second to make the actual uh, movement itself, which is remarkable. I mean, unbelievable speed. But Bob wants to prove he's not only superhuman with his speed, but also with his accuracy. He sets up two targets six feet apart and attempts to hit both faster than the blink of an eye. Listen closely. He does it so quickly that you will not be able to hear two distinctive shots. Oh, yeah, I'm going to bring the gun up, fire two shots, one for each target as fast as I can. Wow. And the gun must be cocked and fired for each shot. Yeah, so you got to cock it, bang, cock it. Aim yep, again, right. cock it, and bang. Yeah. That was absolutely incredible. That was amazing. 
That was phenomenal. Two shots. I only heard one. Did you hear another one? I only heard one shot. That is amazing. That is unbelievable. And even on this graph, the shots even look kind of like one. I've never seen anything like this. Two shots in under a tenth of a second. A remarkable feat of dexterity and hand-eye control. Uh, just incredible. He, he is superhuman. I mean, bottom line is uh, he exceeds what every other human on this planet can do. So, you know, by definition, that would make him superhuman. But Bob doesn't work as a solo act. Wherever he is, so is his wife, Becky, also a world champion shooter. The two are married in 1964 after a three-month courtship. My life has revolved around my wife, my wife, Becky. I don't do anything without her. And I can't, I, can't, I don't even want to do anything without her. After winning every fast draw competition multiple times, Bob sought out new challenges. So Bob and Becky began performing together beginning in 1968, emphasizing the importance of gun safety. Here's Becky remembering the early days when they first started to tour with their fast draw trick shot show. Started traveling, uh, performing in 1969. So it's been quite a few years, and we uh, started out in a uh, station wagon, and we had our two daughters with us, four years old and two years old, and um, we put them in the back with their toys, and we had all of our equipment in the middle seat, you know, and then uh, we were in the front, and we did school assembly programs. Becky may be the only person who can keep Bob in check. I, I guess that's why I'm around, too. <laughs> uh, humble him a little bit once in a while so he's, you know, his, uh, his hat doesn't get too tight. The Mundans have performed in convention centers, malls, and car dealerships. We've done shows at um, amusement parks in uh, New Jersey and New York, and they had no idea that you could shoot a gun and not kill somebody. I mean, really, it's astounding, but they're out there. So uh, we're, we're able to talk to people and, and maybe uh, soften the image of the, of the handgun. We're proud that uh, we can represent the shooting sports in our own way and maybe introduce them to people that don't even know they're out there. After years of traveling, the Mundans spend less time on the road and more time in their Butte, Montana home. This open land is the perfect place for the California natives to do what they do. Well, first of all, we got the freedom to do what we do. There's nobody saying, well, you can't do this, can't do that. California, if it's not illegal, it costs you, as an example. Whether it's trick shooting or gunslinging, Bob learned early on he would need the right equipment to keep up with his talents. Bob would get this equipment by building it himself, custom-made Colt 45 single-action revolvers. This skill would become Bob's second career. So through the process of trial and error and changing the gun around, the lock system and so on, then I learned how to build guns for my own purpose first. And then other people started asking me to do their guns because my guns were so efficient. Those other people include fellow shooters and celebrities like Kurt Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Randy Travis. Piece by piece, part by part, Bob files, grinds, and trims nearly every piece of the Colt until he can dry fire the gun without any friction or flaws in the action. But when they come out of the factory, remember the factories, their job is just to get them where they work safely and uh, right out of the factory. But that doesn't mean they work right. It doesn't mean they're, they're, just, they're just guns that are, that are production guns. When I pick up a gun, I pick it up and I think, 
well, you've got some problems here. I feel, kind of feel like a doctor, a surgeon. When I pick up a gun, I say, well, okay, baby, you've got problems, but I'm going to fix you. I'm going to make you perfect. Until his death from a heart attack on December 10th, 2012, 70-year-old Bob Munden was in his shop on a regular basis doing action and trigger work on single actions, Smith & Wesson double actions, and Bond Derringers. A public celebration at Butte Gun Club for Bob Munden took place on Saturday, June 12, 2013. A six-gun salute began at high noon, in keeping with the tradition in Western movies. Under a beautiful sky, Bob's wife of almost 50 years started things off by stepping up to the firing line and fanning off five rounds. Family members and special guests use single-action revolvers to complete the 70-shot salute, one for every year of Bob's life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Greg. The fastest gun who ever lived. Bob Munden's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get the best five stories each week. Again, that's ouramericannetwork.org.